Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Good morning, Appalachia. Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And this day, we're going to be talking about the hierarchy of doctrine. Yeah. The hierarchy of doctrine. Boring. You can hear people hitting pause and turning it off right now. This is, this is an important point, I think, because of the day in which we're living. I think ecumenical relationships are dependent upon this perception or this understanding. Um, but I want to emphasize the Anglican quality here, because this was all done hundreds of years ago at the Reformation in England. So a lot of times we end up reinventing the wheel, and the wheel's worse than the one that was prior. And we try to create new wineskins and new systems and new structures or we start modifying and tweaking the ones that we have received because we are fundamentally, and I mean this kindly, we are fundamentally ignorant of why things are the way that they are. And in that case, this is where the scriptures really step in and say, you know, don't move a boundary marker. Just, just don't go move a boundary marker that was set by your fathers. Don't do it. Unless you know what's there and you know why it's there and you know what's going on, you don't move it. So this, these are the kinds of things to keep in mind here, right? Um, so when we're talking about the hierarchy of doctrine, this is not particularly boring. I hope not. But it is something that's going to require some thought because we do not operate with the belief in the church that there is actual dogma. And if we have heard the word dogma or dogmatic, we think of it in a, as a pejorative. It's something negative. But let me give you an example in the natural world. Gravity is dogma. Agree to disagree. I'm with you in this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, step off the edge of a building, right? And the dogma of gravity will prove itself to you. Right? So it's, it's a law. It's something that's established. It's something that's fixed. Now, in the case of gravity, there's a measure of relativity to it, right? As it relates to mass, as it relates to competing, uh, uh, I'm talking about with the planets, you know, competing bodies, competing planets, and then et cetera. But the point being is that there's a, there's a dogma, dogmatic element to it. And we have these things in the world all around us. I mean, if you, if you go flying up the road 50 miles an hour over the speed limit, and there's a police officer who's doing what they're supposed to do, You hear what I'm telling you? You have to stop. Well, it's more than stop. At that kind of speed, what are they probably going to do? Boop, boop. Take your license, take your keys, and oh. you can get your car the next day. And I know folks that it happened. To, they, they listened to, to, to GNR, you know, going up 270 at 120 miles an hour back in 88, I think, and uh, got locked up and could go pick their car up the next day. You know, you got to watch your uh, Fiatos. That bodies the Duke Brothers okay, there. Okay, 120, no, 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 170, no. though? <laughs> 270, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Welcome to the Jungle has that effect on most young men. It really does. Yeah, so anyway, um, 
<laughs> dogma, right? So dogma. Dog- there, there is a hierarchy in doctrine. So how do you begin to parse out what that is? And then the next question is, who determines that? Who decides what dogma is or what is essential in Christian faith and practice? So you could also, if dogma is a term that's throwing you, you could think of what is essential, what is non-essential. And of the things that are non-essential, then you can, you can categorize those into different variations as well. So you have what is indifferent, something that's adiaphora. You have, and part of that would be customs and practices. Do you wear a chasuble? Do you wear a stole? Do you use a thurible? Do you genuflect, you know, bend the knee, approaching the altar? Do you, you know, there, you've got that kind of, those kinds of practices. And unless we think that those things aren't important, there are huge disputes amongst the Christians at the time of the Reformation in England over bowing. So it had been the custom of the church that whenever the name of the Lord Jesus was mentioned in the service, the people would give a slight bow. Don't think of you know a, a, somebody in a karate gi giving a bow and then you know, taking a fighting stance. I don't mean that. I mean that someone, it's throughout the service, the Lord's name, Jesus, is mentioned, and there'd be a slight nod of the head. Or maybe a you know more than a nod, a nod of the head, but the shoulders would go forward just a little bit, a slight bow, and the whole congregation would do it. So, and you had a, a group of Puritans, uh, radical Puritans, who said, "No, don't do that because the Scripture doesn't say to do it." <coughs> so they would say, "You, you," and their regulative principle was essentially something like this: You can only do what the Scripture says to do. And anything you do that the Scripture doesn't command you to do is out of order and potentially sinful. Hmm. Which is why they outlawed Christmas and that kind of stuff. Why they, why, yes, and why they railed against church calendars and this kind of, all this, all this, right? Now, the Anglican insistence was that anything that's extra-biblical, the church has permission to do as long as it's not anti-biblical. And the church has power, authority, to legislate, to regulate those extra-biblical practices, like bowing at the name of Jesus. Is there scriptural precedent for bowing at the name of Jesus? Yes. I think you can make it pretty easily. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Scripture says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so liturgically, that, that's one of the reasons why the church for a long time, who knows how far back, had been giving a slight bow when the Lord's name was mentioned in the service. Uh, the sign of the cross, crossing oneself at certain parts of the service. There were people that railed against that as superstition. Anything can be made superstitious, but they railed against it as superstition because the Scripture doesn't command that you do that. But the practice of making the sign of the cross goes as far back into Christian history as we, as we have written records about the topics back into the second century and the end of the late 100s. And they're lifting it from the book of Revelation, Ephesians, and Ezekiel. So, you, you know, point being, we could go into a lots of the particularities, if you will, of customs and things that are adiaphora. They're indifferent. It doesn't mean they're not important, but it means they're indifferent as it relates to the, the faith, the dogmatic components of the faith that must be present for the thing that's being believed to be Christianity. 
And there's a very clear way to, to measure this, right? So canonically, we start with Scripture. What does the Bible say, Genesis to Revelation? And we would consider as part of that testimony in Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, what does what do the deuterocanonical books, the apocryphal books, what do they say? And someone could automatically come back and say, no, that doesn't count because that's not the Bible. The 39 articles are clear that they are, quote, the other books. The church doth read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet does not apply them to establish any doctrine. So here's a, here's a distinction for something that is very important that the apocryphal books are not adiaphora. They're not something indifferent. They're something authoritative. But they're not infallible like the other 66 books. But it doesn't mean you just dismiss them. And I think this, these are the kinds of things that you got to start to juggle for a minute because of the number of Christians who've never read the apocrypha because they consider it Romish superstition. You don't understand the role that those books had all through the formation of the canon of the New Testament when the church was agreeing upon it, and then the way that they've shaped Christian practices and thoughts. Can you go into those books and pull out things to argue that are anti-scriptural? You can, and I'm not going to cite the use of uh, Second Maccabees for indulgences, but I'll cite what Jerome does when he's arguing against Vigilantius, and we talked about this. When Vigilantius says that Scripture, and he cites Esdras, says that the dead do not hear prayer, and Jerome comes back and he says, no, to be in Christ is to be alive, and they do hear prayer. These books aren't Scripture, but they have merit. Right? So mm-hmm. it's flipped around, okay? So there's, that's one example, uh, or one the first step here. So canonically, Genesis to Revelation, what are we looking at? What does the Scripture say? Then we have to look at the consensus tradition of the church. Some of this is a recap. I know it is, but we, we need to do this before we get into particularities. Um, what does the tradition of the church say, capital T? What, what has the church said with one voice? So this doesn't mean that you, you take Irenaeus or you take Augustine or Chrysostom or Gregory the Great or John Cassian or St. Macrina or any of the other major leaders and thinkers in the early church or in the medieval church for that matter and you suddenly make them the prism through which you read Christianity. Now, that is a distinctive problem in the, in the Reformation era, the latter portion of the Reformation. People are reading Scripture, and they're reading the Fathers through Luther, or through Calvin, or through Zwingli. One of the, the wonderful particularities of the English Reformation is that there's no singular theologian that becomes the capstone of what the Church believes. They're really doing their best to hold to principles of Catholicity. It doesn't mean that there aren't influencers, that there aren't leaders, that there aren't theologians, but that's just it. They're plural. And what do they do uh, primarily but work on a prayer book? So it's a practical divinity that's lifting from the clear teaching of Scripture, because that's what most of the prayer book is, and how the Church in the first 500 years, 1,000 years, I mean, the, the Church in her undivided history, how the church understood the, the scriptures, what what the church understood the, the scriptures to be commanding, what they what they understood the, the scriptures to be advocating, to be instructing us towards, and that's 
And then and they they saw that not because they just read the sermons of the fathers, but because they read the ancient liturgies. And so they would take those, Cranmer and some of the others, they took those and they crafted them. And then you get a whole other group of scholars that do that in you know the early 1660s to give us the 1662 prayer book. So there's another example of why, as Anglicans, we have formularies, and those formularies, they're forms based upon the clear teaching of Scripture, the consensus of the fathers, with an, a, a profound appreciation for the effect of the Reformation and the insistence of the Reformation on the doctrines of grace. You say this? Does it make sense? Yeah. Okay. Perfect sense. So, and then reason. And reason, what we mean by reason is not the pagan philosophies to, and, and then taking them and reading Scripture through them. We've talked about that here the past few weeks with critical theory, uh, critical race theory, with the, uh, the Frankfurt School, with the sexual revolution. We talked about all of that uh, Marxist ideologies, how those things have been, ad- have been taken by well-intentioned Christians and then they read the Bible through those prisms, and because we live in a, a, um, a philosophically postmodern era since the early 70s, where those multiform and multiple hermeneutics for, and, and the way to read Scripture is something that's positive and affirmed, rather than looking at it scripturally as, no, those are things to be uh, verboten, They're, they should be forbidden. That's not how the Church has always read the Scripture. That's not how the Church has understood Scripture. That's not what reason is in the, in the Anglican conception. It's how do we take our sanctified reasoning that's been shaped by Scripture and by the consensus teaching of the Church and then appropriate what it clearly and plainly says to the era and the time in which we live. It's a very different way that reason is supposed to be one of the, the means through which we understand the Bible as opposed to reason being the sunglasses we're wearing while we read the Bible. You see the difference? <clears throat> I see it. Can you give? It does make sense. However, can you give? A, can you flesh that out a little bit more? Just a little bit. Well, we don't read the scripture. We don't learn what scripture means at the feet of Karl Marx and Marx's disciples. We don't read scripture at the feet of Lenin and the Bolsheviks. We don't read Scripture at the feet of the Frankfurt School or Desidera or some of the later uh, philosopher, philosophers who are giving us the teaching that, well, okay, this is called Appalachian Anglican, our podcast. For those who don't know, in postmodern hermeneutics, here's what you would do. is You would say, okay, I live in a holler. We have to pump in the sunshine, and we pump out moonshine. The sun rises at 10 a.m. and sets at 2 p.m. because it's just where my house is positioned in the holler. So when I read my Bible and I start to read about how God created the world and how God wants uh, the world to be arranged and situated and how Jesus came to save us from our sins, I need to contextualize that to fit my experience in the holler. So now I understand what the Bible means on the basis of my moonshine production. And because I make my own moonshine, so I can ensure that people have enough inebriation to enjoy themselves. People say, well, that's not what moonshine's for. Moonshine's just for taking the edge off in the evening. Go find the holler where they're pumping in the moonshine and the sun's rising at 10 and setting at 2. And I'll tell you that they're not making the moonshine just to take the edge off like somebody does with a glass of wine. They have a very different objective. 
but they would read the scriptures and they would say all of those passages in there that forbid drunkenness, they don't apply anymore because my context is different. If my moonshine is not productive and I can't bootleg it the right way, I won't have the kind of money I need to get my kids out of the holler and they, they'll have to just keep wearing you know, the grain sack clothing that we've had for them and, and they won't be able to go to the public school because I can't get them down the dirt road to get them to school. So they start reading the Bible and realize that all of the commands about drunkenness don't apply. But what does apply are the promises of God that if they ask God for what they need, He'll give it to them. So now suddenly they're reading the church as white redneck Appalachians, or reading scripture as white redneck Appalachians, and they create a church that functions for the production of moonshine and the betterment of society because that's how God delights in them. Through moonshine. Well, moonshine just happens to be a staple part of their economy. And it's only by selling good quantities of moonshine they have the kind of money to spread around to their friends. <clears throat> so you're saying reason in the sense is not necessarily interpreting it in a way that you want to, but it's applying it in the way that it's supposed to be applied. Yes, because what should happen is when the fellow's living in the, the, the holler and he realizes that the Scripture forbids drunkenness, he needs to take serious consideration into what he's doing to make his money. So I use this phrase a lot, and it's, they use the word uh, sterile, because I really like the, the picture that paints uh, for it. So is that kind of where you're getting at? You can't allow these, some of these outside contaminations when you're using reason to actually... Well, this is why reason is third on the totem pole, right? What does the Scripture say in any, any, so let's, let's say, let's say that um, Genesis to Revelation, the Bible forbids drunkenness, which it does, but let's say we find a 250-year period in Christian history where the church said that that wasn't the case. Drunkenness was not a sin, and it was okay, and it was a biological necessity because it relieved the stress in the mind and you needed to sleep more so you could sin less. It's true. Okay. That's a good one. That's it. That last part you gave there, that was a good argument. The church almost, says amen. It's almost Lutheran, right? Because what did Luther say? <laughs> Luther said that he who sleeps does not sin. He who drinks sleeps. Therefore, let us drink so we do not sin. There'd be a lot of people who have problems with that today from Luther. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things there's Luther of, said. There's that, a, that, but there's that, also that, a lot of people who wouldn't. So. Right, there's a lot of people who wouldn't. The point being is that let's say you could find a 250-year period where that was the case, where the church said that drunkenness is not a problem, and they advocated it, and we've got, and then we go do the archaeological digs, and we discover underneath the Vatican all of these moonshine, Italian moonshine uh, <laughs> still, distilleries. Okay? Well, here's what people do today. They'll say, look, for 250 years it wasn't a sin. And look at all the great stuff they did while they were making the booze and they were all getting slammed. I guess it's okay then. Let's just change what we're doing. Even though the Scripture says not to, we know the Scripture really didn't mean it. That's a faulty appropriation of, of reason. What's supposed to happen is you go back and let's say you discover that that's indeed something that happened. Then based upon your cleaving to Scripture, and learning what Scripture means at the consensus doctrine of the fathers, the tradition, you would say the church was wrong for that 250-year period in that particular area where they advocated it. Because it, it, it would never become a Catholic practice. And let's say that it does almost become a Catholic practice, like, the, like Arianism. Arianism, 
essentially becomes one of the default positions for many of the leaders of the church for almost 100 years. I mean, it's a long time. Athanasius and the other guys like him are the minority who are resisting this and really preaching and teaching against it and suffering in the process of it, for it. Um, and the, but the truth of God wins out because of the faithfulness, the insistency, and the stability of those teaching bishops. And in this case, in that, that case, because of the, the way the empire would eventually swing to, to support the orthodox position. So reason, when we talk about scripture, tradition, and reason, we don't, we don't understand the reason to be, let's take this pagan worldview and read the Bible through that. That's, that's not how we do it. No, we read the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, knowing that scripture interprets scripture, the clearer passages of scripture make sense of the less clear passages of scripture, and then we consult with the tradition of the church, because if the Holy Spirit is indeed saying, uh, giving us the meaning of scripture as we're reading it, when we look at the fathers, we look at the tradition of the church, we'll see that they were teaching the same thing. Like that we, we want to be in conformity with what the Holy Spirit's always been doing because he doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable. He doesn't change. So what he does doesn't change. And the method of redemption doesn't change. And the preaching of the gospel doesn't change. And the moral and ethical and practical expectations of the church and her worship doesn't change. Within all of that, there is a pluriform, there's a variety, there's a diversity of custom, there's a diversity of lowercase t traditions, of practices and of expectations. There's variations on lots of things, and much of that we would count adiaphora. We wouldn't consider it to be dogma. But one of the challenges that we're dealing with today is a lot of things that are dogma have been relegated to adiaphora, things that ought not to change, things that there can be no disagreement on, have been turned into, well, that's just your opinion. And because of when we live, the reclassification of those particular points as adiaphora, of, as, as something that's just custom, is through the lens of a postmodern hermeneutic that says, well, that's just your culture and context, failing to understand that God created the culture of ancient Israel, and he created the context of their utter dependency upon him as a people to give them the law, to teach them what they needed, so that whatever Scripture says canonically, Genesis to Revelation, is immediately and directly appropriated to every culture as something that's over it. So everything falls down before the Son of Man as though it were dead. And it's only at the word of the Son of Man that he says, do not be afraid, I have the keys of death and hell, and he causes us to stand up. Everything does. So, that's a long intro, and hopefully they enjoyed a chuckle, y'all enjoyed a chuckle on the moonshine riff there. Um, but I think we need to get into, we need to get into some day-for-day -day issues, and depending upon the churchmanship and the, and the kind of denomination people are in when they're listening to this, they may say, I disagree with that. Okay. I, I mean, I kind of expect that, right? Because that's part of the, the theological development process. I disagree with that. Well, one of the things to ask yourself is who, told, who says? Who sets the parameters for what's day for day and what's not? 
And so people, as I mentioned a minute ago, they'll go back to a particular reformer. They'll go back to a particular teacher. And there is merit in that. But if you, if you appropriate that improperly, you end up falling into the schismatic disposition, dispens, disposition of the Corinthians. Right? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Jesus. I'm, not a, I'm, I'm non-denominational. I'm just a Christian. Listen, Corinthian. <laughs> yeah. So you, you got to keep that in, in step. We don't have doctrine here. Right. We, we don't, don't need we that. Don't do, the doctrine divides. The Spirit unites. So you... you, you uh, no, that's false, my friends. If you don't know that, that's false. The Spirit always unites us around day-for-day doctrine of Christ, the gospel. So you, you've got to go back with that question. Who says? Who says? And here's where the, church, the Scripture speaks clearly that the church is the pillar of truth. The church is the bulwark of truth in society. Paul tells Titus this. So the Scripture is telling us to obey the church. The Scripture says that if you don't obey the authorities of the church, you're out of step. Well, what about when the authorities are wrong? Well, hold on. Before you start looking for reasons to justify rebellion and disobedience, let's get the principle established that the Scripture clearly says to obey both the written and the oral tradition. The Scripture says that if anyone disagrees with what I'm saying, he's unspiritual and ought to be ignored. So Paul says in Corinthians. When uh, John says that Diotrephes, who loves to be first and is not receiving the people that we're sending, he says, I'll, I'll ex-, essentially, John says, I'll kick him out of the church. I'll expel him, right? Because he's expelling the people that we're sending. And you get Peter. I mean, just read the book of Acts. I mean, he, <laughs> uh, there's no quarter here if, you, <laughs> if you're not staying in step with the apostolic practice. Uh, you know, either the Holy Spirit lays you dead at Peter's feet, or he just invites you to go ahead and, and, and go on to hell yourself in Acts chapter 8 with Simon the sorcerer. So you've got a whole scope here of the expecta- expectation of the apostles that there would be not just doctrinal agreement, they are, they, they are insistent upon this, but that there would be, a, there'd be one visible unity of the church. And they go to great lengths to preserve that. Look at Acts 15, look at Galatians, look at, look at the disputes that they did have and their insistence that there be one church, which is one of the fundamental reasons, guys, we have the Bible, is because the Bible, uh, the New Testament in particular, the, the, letter, the letters and the Gospels of the New Testament were written to particular churches and people, but they were circulated amongst the churches because people knew they were apostolic. They were the word of the Lord. And that's why they read them from church to church. We see that in the pages of the New Testament. Make sure that you, re, you read the letter that's come from Laodicea. Uh, look at the book of Revelation. The, the Revelation is addressed to seven particular churches in Asia Minor, but then it's read to all the other churches. So that's how we get it. The Scripture says to obey the church. Okay, now let's move into the next era. What if the church is wrong? Well, Augustine talks about bishops who don't preach the gospel, who don't hold to the apostolic doctrine, as forfeiting their role. They've negated the purpose for their office. And he says they're not really bishops. So you can see how that that can bust up the engine of the church pretty fast. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. And so, but that, those are the kinds of things that the Reformers go back to. And in the days of the Arian controversy, which is a, a perfect example here, there were cross-jurisdictional or cross-boundary ordinations. So they, you had the Orthodox who would ordain people to go in and essentially 
continued the Orthodox work of the church while the Arian churches were still there claiming to be the real descendants of the apostles, to, be, to really be the apostolic succession. And there are places where they don't do that, but there, that is a, a cross-boundary thing that's taking place because it's part of the corrective in the church. That is not, that practice is not what we see today in the larger evangelical body of Christianity, where every denomination vies for its own particularity and understands that denominationalism is the mind of the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, then we can just cut out John 17. Or we can do what some have done and interpret John 17 to be spiritual. Jesus wants a spiritual unity that's not visible. Visible unity doesn't matter. But if you do that, then you've got to recalibrate all the other teachings, in the, like in the parable of the wheat and the tares. They're all in one field. That's Augustine's point. The wheat and the tares are all in one field until the end. You can't divide the church, knowing that the church is full of true and untrue crops, if you will. Um, so what you want to do, firstly, is you've got to look at the doctrine. You've got to look at the dogma, because the contours of the church are sacramental. There's a, there's a very definitive boundary to enter into the promised land of eternal life, to enter into covenant with God, to be part of the body of Christ, and it is the church baptism. Baptism, yes. Right. Baptism adds you into the body of Christ, and baptism is not just a spiritual event. It's a sacrament. It's sacramental, which means there has to be a physical, material component that's signifying and the means by which the spiritual grace is being given, and it's baptism. So to be baptized is to be in the church. Okay? So you've come into the body of Christ, but let's say you're in the body of Christ and the particular church you're in doesn't hold to the day-for-day doctrine of the church. And that's why we need to talk about what is dogma at this point. I found Rome's list. You found what? Rome, one of Rome's lists. Okay. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, the one that was collected is uh, they were criticizing him because he didn't have all of them. Okay. Uh, and he's at 257. 257 <laughs> things that are day for day? Yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> a lot of, I, I'm, I haven't really seen anything on here like, eh. They break it down a lot, though. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, so I can't comment on it. So, like, they break it down a little bit more Big Bird Barney style rather than, like, large statements. So if a statement would have multiple statements, like, smaller statements of truth within it, they just start breaking it down a little bit more is what uh, a few of these guys have been doing. It's say, I mean, it's true they have been said in statements, but um, in small, well, bite-sized like unofficial, like these aren't like, I don't think these are official statements, but it's like, this is what we believe. Well, Rome does elevate papal statements to dogma. So they have matters, uh, particular doc doctrines as it relate to the Blessed Virgin Mary as dogma, meaning you have to believe them to be Christian, to be part of the Catholic Church. The Anglican perspective is that only those things that are clearly explained and taught in Scripture that have the consensus understanding of the fathers are day for day. So the first thing that we would go to that's a practical form that you begin to look at 
is the Apostles' Creed. I was just about to go there because that's probably where my mind goes when I think about dogma. Yeah. So since you brought up Rome's 200 and yeah, like whatever. Yeah. Uh, what does the Apostles' Creed say about Mary? I have to remember. Let me pull this up. You guys, if you do morning and evening prayer, you should have this memorized. Come I'm working, on. I'm working on memorizing. There's a the lot Apostles of things Creed. I should have memorized. First, she's born. Yeah. Just born of the Virgin Mary. Born of what? Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary. So, what is the creed saying is day for day? That Mary, the Virgin, is the mother of Of Jesus. The mother of God, Theotokos. Mm hmm. Do you see this? I mean, look at it. For our friends who don't who who are listening to this without the Apostles' Creed in front of you, the second article, the, the Apostles' Creed is arranged into three confessional articles. God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and a list of, of deeds about him, and then the Holy Spirit and a list of deeds about him. Or uh, not yeah, deeds, works, attributes of him. Okay. The Nicene Creed follows the same trajectory. So you and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed are, are two other creeds that are instrumental for day-for-day doctrine. What we have here in the Apostles' Creed is that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the Lord Jesus. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And when the Creed says born of the Virgin Mary, you have to believe in the Virgin Birth. So a virgin, virginal conception, a virginal birth, and here's what people miss about this. Uh, one of the things they miss about that, she's a virgin even after she gives birth biologically. So that's not possible. Hello? It's not possible to be pregnant without a husband. You, know, you understand what I'm saying without being graphic? The whole thing is miraculous, which is why in the infancy gospel of James, which is not canonical, but something that all of the early fathers believed and, and bore uh, uh, appreciation for, is that when Mary gives birth to Jesus, she's not even in pain. You say, what? Come on. That's ridiculous. How could, how could she really give birth to Jesus and not be in pain? That's not, that's not possible. Hello? What is the curse that God puts on Eve? Pain in childbirth. Pain in childbirth. The, the great increase. So any, right. So when you look at the, why did the early fathers in the early church teach that she did not have the excess pains of childbirth? Because this is the, this is the recapitulation. This is the redeeming of humanity. Okay. Is it day for day to say that she, it was a painless birth? No. It's day for day to say that it was a virgin birth. So you see a corollary here, or, or how you have day for day doctrine, and then how that gives way to particular customs and thoughts and devotional ideas. The, the, uh, the Christmas carol, Silent Night, right? A lot of that, the language from that, that song... Silent night, holy night, you know, uh, round yon virgin, mother and child. I mean, um, 
uh, No Crying He Makes, all of these particular snippets that are in that. It was written by a Catholic priest, and he lifted a lot of that, the material in that song from the proto-evangel, or the infancy gospel of James. That's where he got it. And he wrote it because the organ broke, and they needed a, they needed a song. <laughs> Pragmatism at its finest. Yeah. It's turned into just a, something everybody sings at Christmas now. So the point being, uh, because of looking at that very long list, as far as the Apostles' Creed goes, the virgin birth is essential. I mentioned William Temple, who was the one-time Bishop of uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, who passed away in 1944, I believe, uh, 45, 44, 45. He, um, when he was in the process of being ordained to the, to the diaconate in the early 1900s, they told him no because he didn't believe in the virgin birth. And so he went back and restudied again and recognized that he needed to conform with the teaching of the church, and he did so. Well, now you've got leading Anglican theologians who are mostly Orthodox on many points, who are saying things like the virgin birth is a secondary issue. No, it's not. It's day for day. Yeah, because if that's not, if that's not day for day, then the stuff that's inserted in later times, especially by popular, you know, cults, such as the Mormons, and they, Mormons actually believe in celestial whatever, you know, that that that's how Mary had uh, became pregnant with baby Jesus. So what I'm trying to say is, if that's not if that's not primary, you can insert stuff like that in there. I would withhold passing judgment on, on the Mormons. Um, I'm, 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 no, I'm no. Here, here's where, an example. Because, like, I mean, I know there's here's why more. I'm saying that because the the issue of day for day goes far beyond. The virgin birth, when we're talking about different Christian cults that are cults that are essentially polytheistic, and have a have a very different understanding of monotheism. Right, right. But I, right. I guess I guess in my best ability, of trying to so let's yeah. start instead of instead of trying to juxtaposition this to Christian cults, think about it within received forms of Christian orthodoxy, where they're genuinely not orthodox and they don't know it. Better point. So the issue here is that the Apostles' Creed says that he's born of the Virgin Mary, capital V. Now, here's how the rest of the early church believed what this meant. Ever virgin. She was a virgin after the birth of Christ and stayed that way until she died or was taken up into heaven. I don't think, I, th- I think she died. I think that the dormition of the virgin is true, that she, she went to sleep and then was taken into heaven. Uh, the Latin base for our feast, our feast day for Mary on August fifteenth. Uh, in English, we say that you know uh, God has taken her. You know, you, you've taken her to yourself. Assumptio is the Latin back for that. Latin that's being lifted from. And assumption and ascension are very different. Assumption is when God takes you in. Ascension is when Jesus goes in of His own power. There are two different perspectives here. But coming back to today for day. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean there aren't other things that are day for day that the Apostles' Creed doesn't mention, right? But that's where you would start. Yeah, I mean it's the main bone structure of because it was the baptismal creed. This is what you confessed to be baptized when you were baptized. So this is your entrance into the church. It's 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 that fundamental. It's day for day. Didn't this have to be memorized in the first century? 
No. If you have like no, it's memorized. It's memorized later on, but they wouldn't teach it to you until you were baptized. So okay. what was their basis for forgiving people preparation for baptism? Moral and ethical transformation. You had to start to obey the gospel. So if you were, if you were, I mentioned the moonshiner and, and the, the holler, if you were engaged in patterns of behavior that were not ethically and morally, morally aligned with, say, the Sermon on the Mount and the, the moral law of Moses, you could not be part of the church. And they would give people two or three years to get their houses in order through repentance and, and showing a genuine desire to serve, the, to serve the Lord before they would bring him into the community. That is considered by some legalism. And they'd say, no, we just go ahead and you know, baptize him. And that's turned into, well, no, just raise your hand and make a profession of faith and you're saved. That doesn't take into consideration the two other components that you needed to be a Christian in the early church. And this is in our own catechism now as well. It's not just the Apostles' Creed, but it's the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. So if you didn't attend church on Sunday, guess what? You're not going to get baptized. You won't be baptized. So if you're taking liberties to miss church on Sundays, then you're creating a different day than the Lord's Day. Here's, here's Christian ethics at its best. That's day for day, right? It's, it's a fundamental requirement to be baptized, that you will attend church on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. And so for people who intentionally do not attend church on a Sunday, meaning you know there are times when the ox falls into a ditch. Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay? So you've got to keep these principles in mind, otherwise you turn, it turns into Phariseeism of the, of the worst kind. But most of us are not in danger of that. We are in danger of libertinism and assuming that we can, we can skip church to go shopping. We can skip church to go to, to our local ball teams. We can skip church to go to do whatever we want to do because Jesus loves us and he's okay with it. You don't understand the commandment. I once heard someone say, you know, if your ox falls in a ditch, you know, you got to get it out. They also said that if that ox keeps falling in that ditch, it might be time to put it down. Yeah, because there's plenty of people today that overexert themselves Friday night and Saturday, and Sunday morning they're tired. I just got to rest. I got to go back to work on Monday. Well, then you need to change your behaviors Saturday and Friday and Saturday. That's what you need to do. Well, you're being legalistic. No, I'm giving you the gospel. The gospel says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Right? So uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed, here are your three, three starting places for things that are fundamental to being a Christian, to the faith, and how we organize and arrange doctrine around that. The, the third article of the Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. The Nicene Creed says something a little different. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. There are some Christian denominations that say you cannot call the Holy Spirit Lord. Do not call him Lord because the New Testament never calls him Lord. That's wrong. You're, you're, that's, the, that's an improper hermeneutic. No, he is the Lord. He's the giver of life. Uh, the Nicene Creed goes on to say that uh, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So one, the church is visibly one, not just spiritually one, but visibly one. 
And so when we look around today and we see the various divisions and schisms in the church, we look at that and recognize that's because of sin. It shouldn't be that way. We don't make excuses for it, and we shouldn't say that it's okay. It's wrong that it's this way. Okay? So it's one, because there's only one body of Christ. There's only one altar. There's all of this in, uh, in Ephesians 4. One, it's, it's holy. The church has to be holy. There's the, the ethical and moral, moral requirements of things that are day for day in the church. And we're made holy by Christ because we're in Christ, but being, or not but, and by being in Christ and being made holy by Christ, that's practical. It's very practical. So when you look at the law of Moses and God commands Israel to be holy as he is holy, he says in the law how they're made holy, by obeying the commandments, by obeying the law that makes them practically and functionally distinct as a people. It's by hearing the gospel and obeying the gospel that we become a holy and a distinct people. In the words of the King James, a, a peculiar people. We are, uh, Petra took it and made it a song. We are strangers, we are aliens. There you go, it's a little, little classic Petra for you. Uh, lifting out, out, out of Peter's letter there. So we, we, um, we have this one holy, then Catholic. So the church is not does not have permission to do whatever it wants wherever it is. You see in, in 1 Corinthians, five times Paul talks about all the churches or amongst the churches. He's emphasizing that both the doctrine and the practices that he's giving to them apply everywhere. It's Catholic. So the Catholicos, uh, and the, the term, the word Catholic, it's not used in the New Testament but it's used by Ignatius. And Ignatius, who was discipled by Paul and some of the other apostles, Ignatius says what about the Catholic Church? He's the first one to use the word. Where the bishop is, there is the church. Where Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. And that takes us into the fourth point. It's apostolic. To confess that the church is apostolic doesn't mean that we are confessing the church as a missionary society. That's implied. But to sit, when, when the fathers are working in, on that creed and they talk about the church being apostolic, they're talking about the apostolic succession. The church is in continuity in time and space with the apostles, their doctrine and their practices. So one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. See? So you, you've got that line. Uh, so all, all of this to say, there's plenty of day-for-day points out here, and these day-for-day -day points for the faith have been relegated to things that are, that are adiaphora, and they're not. So why did they become that way? And that would take us into a much longer history lesson, but in, in brief, it's because of the jettisoning, jettisoning of the church, that the church as an institution is just a pragmatic creation of people and cultures and times, and not really the body, the, the organic body of Jesus that is both heavenly and earthly. In a more pragmatic way, would you also say that making some of these day for days like secondary is also a result of the diminishing of scripture, tradition, and reason, or a misunderstanding of either of them? Maybe. 
I think most of it is, a, is well, like, I can't even say that. Like, what I'm saying is, like, would a misunderstanding of one of those almost lead you to unintentionally put something that's day for day into... No, I don't think so, because, like, the Roman Catholic Church, because we mentioned them earlier, uh, one of the things that Rome did to, to deal with errors, and they did this um, a thousand years ago, was the creation of... I won't say it was created then, but it was a shift in focus, I'll put it that way, is the, is papal, the rise of papal authority. Why, why did they insist upon such a strong papal authority and then a, a curia, you know, aside from the historical basis of the curia, the Senate and its relationship to Caesar. So here's the curia the, in relationship to the papacy, the parallel there. Why do they do that? One of the reasons is because it was a, one of the Reformation epochs in the church, in church history. And so the guys that really were doing that were, were pressing for systems that would ensure uniformity, because the Scripture calls us to speak with one voice, one mind, the script, uh, a uniformity of doctrine and practice, and to safeguard the church from heretical errors. That's why they did it. So, and they localized that power jurisdictionally into the papacy. So that they they don't run into problems. Well, I mean, a few centuries later, it's kind of I mean, you, you could see how the, the the tables have turned. But that doesn't mean that all the reformers who rise up because of the problems that the papacy had uh, either sponsored or gotten behind, it doesn't mean that the reformers were all right either. Which is where the very conservative nature of the English Reformation speaks that much more powerfully. To say, no, we're not getting rid of bishops, priests, and deacons. We're not getting rid of the apostolic succession. We're not getting rid of the sacraments. We're not getting rid of customs and practices. In fact, customs and practices shouldn't change unless they're contrary to Scripture, because you destabilize the day-for-day -day faith of God's people, because they typically don't think in terms of these finer points of doctrine. So they don't—you you stop bowing at the name of Jesus— in the, in the liturgy, and suddenly you're saying he's not worthy of worship in your daily life because it's a custom that's been around for so long. And as you've changed custom, you're going to change the doctrine for the people who don't know any better. So, so the very conservative nature of the English Reformation sought to preserve, one, those issues that are day for day, and then all of the Catholic tradition that preceded it that was not contrary to what was plainly written in the scriptures as it was understood by the fathers. So I think what we have to be mindful of is what we were talking about at the beginning, is how reason takes the place of revelation. And that's one of the biggest things that, that's, that, that why people will come back and say, well, the virgin birth is a secondary doctrine. Well, it's not a long step to deny the virgin birth, to, be the, to begin de denying Jesus' miracles. I took a class on healing at seminary, and one of the books that we read was by an author who was saying that the physical healings in the New Testament, by and large, really weren't physical healings. They were, they were um, psychosomatic healings. They were healings of a person's mind and disposition. They weren't really physical healings, unless it's a paralytic or something. But most of the, well, even then, most of the healings were the healing of the mind and the heart, and then the body followed suit, and in many cases people would get better, and even if they didn't get better, their quality of life improved. Why would the guy argue that? 
because he doesn't have faith. No, I mean, the man's full of faith. You read the whole book that he's arguing, that he's writing. But it, that's, that is an example of taking reason and natural science reasoning and making and, and swapping it out. So it's reason, scripture, right? Reason, scripture, tradition, or however they want to do that. Reason replaces revelation. And you can't do that. Revelation must be the primary means for understanding the, uh, God himself. Uh, as one, one theologian wrote, we can no more know God than, than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. So unless Shakespeare put himself in the story and had, him, had him himself interact with Hamlet, Hamlet couldn't know him because he was the creation. So we can't know God unless he puts himself in the story. Well, he does. He puts a lot of his glory is revealed in natural law, but then the particular means of revelation, of being saved, of, of God's redemptive purposes, are, are revelatory through the person of Jesus Christ directly. So that's the bigger issue, is when reason replaces revelation. It's well said. I mean, I probably didn't articulate it like that, but I can understand how people would get to that point a little bit better. So what about secondary issues? What, what are the... Because we got in the, I think we've pretty subtly hit the primary or like important. Well, so this ways. is where the difficult part comes in because the secondary issues, who, who decides what's secondary and primary? So as Anglicans, we would say, we should say, the formularies determine that. We go back to things like the 39 articles. We go back to the prayer book. We go back to, to the ordinal. All of that is vitally important. Now, they're not all equal in authority because they're all derivative authorities from the apostolic succession as the succession understands the teaching of Scripture at the feet of the fathers. So they're derivative authorities. But this is, that's part of the point here, is who's making the decision. So you go to another Christian denomination, and they'll say the apostolic succession is not primary. It's not a primary doctrine. It's not necessarily day for day that you need it to be saved. Because if you are in extremis, you're out in the jungle somewhere, you're out on an island somewhere, and a missionary comes by, and, or, or somebody comes by with a Bible because they're selling books, and you read through it, and suddenly you read the gospel, and uh, you, give your, you give your heart to Christ and call out to him to be saved, is he not going to save you? And that's what we do. We always go to those wild, wild examples to justify the point. Um, but they would, they would argue, well, that's not really something that's integral to the faith. You see the problem here? Right. Would you put like... Because in the Gospels, how integral are the apostles? Pretty important. Very important. Yeah, without the apostles, we don't even have written records of the Gospels. We don't have the church. We don't have the foundation of the church. We don't have the sacraments. We don't have anything. Because they give it to us from the mouth and the hands of the Lord. Okay? So it's very important that we hold to the apostolic succession. And if you say, well, it's not part of the essence, the essay of the church, it's just beneficial to the essence of the church, then by the same extension, you can say neither is the Scripture. I'm not saying Scripture and the apostolic succession are equal. The apostolic succession is, is, needs to be submitted to Scripture. But the point is, if you're saying that, well, the sacramental life, because who, who administers 
the principal uh, number of sacraments, who administers more sacraments? The, the clergy, those who are ordained, minister the sacraments, with the exception of baptism and marriage. They administer the sacraments. So if you remove the apostolic succession, then you are by extension removing a large portion of the validity, valid administration of the sacraments. You see how that's how you parallel those ideas. Would that then lead somebody to the question, what are sacraments as a whole? Well, that's the other that's another point. Are sacraments day for day? Well, according to the creed, there's how many baptisms for the forgiveness of sins? One. One. And what's it what's the baptism for? I just said it. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. So if you're not baptized, guess what? There is no forgiveness of sins. Right. Well, what about the thief on the cross? Come on. What about the guy on the desert island who just got a copy of the Bible and he died before he could actually get baptized? But he really what about did. the I got a knife from the back, I'm about to die. Right. Like you can't do that. Like that's you can't do that. That 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 gets into speculative theology, which is meant to undercut. Here's here's the thing about that kind of stuff. It's meant to undercut the clear consensus doctrine of the church that's revealed by God in Scripture. Do those kinds of things happen? They do happen. And guess who's responsible for what is going to happen to those people in those situations? Jesus is. Because it's not like he's a distant Lord. He's very present. He's very present, reigning in heaven. Very present. And he will make the right decision. Shall not the judge of the earth, a judge of all the earth, do right? And he will. So we got to stop getting into that kind of stuff, which is intended to undercut the clear teaching of the church. So, as far as the sacraments go, the sacraments are in the creed. If you read uh, in, in the, the creed, the communion of the saints, right? I believe one holy Catholic church, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the, the holy Catholic church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins. Right. So, the communion of the saints, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with uh, Hades and Halloween again, right? Didn't we talk about that then? Yes. It was around that time. Yeah, we talked like about a few weeks for. We, we ta- yeah, we talked about the communion of the saints again in reference to the um, to those in victory and on the other side. One of the implicit implicit understandings of the communion of the saints that we didn't highlight of that in that conversation because it wasn't where we were going overall is the this communion of the saints. the 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 saints are a communion because of the Eucharist. So both in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed is the essential confession of communion, of the Eucharist, and baptism. They're integral. When you go to the Apostles' Creed, the apostolic succession is integral. And what does that mean, right? That the Church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. We just talked about it. What is the apostolic succession? Well, as Anglicans, we would go then to the ordinal. We go to the the form of making bishops, priests, and deacons that's in the prayer book. The ordinal, the, the ordinal, listen to this. Let me, let me, uh, let me see. I think it's page five. Is it page 500? Do you have this memorized yet, Josh? I'm working on it. You're working on it? I start at the back so we can just meet together in the middle. <laughs> Is that what you did? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's page, um, in the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, uh, 68, 69. It's like page 470, thereabouts. Okay. And here's what the ordinal says, and this they're just lifting it from the 1662 and, and the 1549 and on all the, uh, well, I won't say the 49, but they're lifting it from the, the tradition of the prayer book here, uh, the ordinal. The holy scriptures and ancient authors 
teach that from the apostles' time, three orders of ministry have existed in Christ's church, bishops, priests, and deacons. From the earliest days of the church, these offices were always held in such reverent estimation that no one might presume to execute any of them without first being called, tried, examined, and ascertained to have such qualities as are requisite. And I could go on and read the rest of it. But here's the point I'm making. They don't cite anything. They just simply say, it's evident. So here's an appeal to consensus, to Catholicity. Go back and read the fathers of the church. Go back and read the earliest of the fathers of the church. And are you going to find a difference in ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons and the way that they relate to each other? You're not. It doesn't exist. So what the, what the prayer book is saying, by appealing to antiquity and to the practice of the apostles and, and the early church, there is no variation here. And, the, and what that implies and teaches us, we don't have authority to change it. So the apostolic succession is vital to the ongoing life and longevity of the church. It's vital. Now, you mentioned Rome, so we'll come back to Rome again for a second. Rome puts the locus of the apostolic succession in the papacy, that the papacy is the apostolic succession, and it's only those bishops in fellowship with Rome, in communion with Rome, that are validly in the succession. The Eastern Church never did that. The Orthodox Church has never did that. And so, you know, we can look at the, um, the, the way our Anglican patrimony came around in the Reformation was very much like the East. So as Anglicans, we understand ourselves to be a province of the, local, of, of the Holy Catholic Church, not the Catholic Church. There's a distinction there as well. So I, what denomination somebody wants to go into is going to determine what they count day for day, and what they count, what they count as dogma, what they count as unnecessary, what they count as adiaphora. And depending on how old their denomination is, they probably don't even have those categories yet. That's the other thing to reckon with. And if they're independent churches, meaning they believe that the local congregation of, let's say, it's uh, 200 people, let's say it's 1,000 people, let's say it's 3,000 people, it's a megachurch that's independent, what scriptural justification do they have for that? And I'm not saying those people aren't baptized and part of the body of Christ. You, under, you understand how we gotta right, how right, we're trying yeah. to parse this out to really, in some ways, sum up a lot of the stuff we've been talking about so far this fall, and to to lay some groundwork on some of the stuff we'll do um, in the next couple of weeks and and then in the spring. So you're looking at day for day, and you're looking at Adiaphora. I mean, if it's if it's just me, obviously the background that I have is more of a Protestant background as a whole okay for the most part baptist pentecostal sort of kind of intermingled within there but so for me like i think some of the stuff that i know growing up that now that i would probably consider a lot more secondary issues that's kind of what i'm responding to specifically well i mean the 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 baptist pentecostal the the free church those yeah there's prod they're protestant because they're protesting particular doctrines of the church of rome but they are not part of the early Reformation heritage because of the way that, they, that they've organized themselves and the adoption of an organizational principle that's derived more from American civics 
where we have the freedom to, of religion, to freedom of assembly, to gather as, as we would like to. And that's coming out of the Enlightenment area, era in the way that moved through English thought and life. Okay. And I'm not denigrating those groups. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But they're, when you're thinking about, say, because people will say, well, I, I grew up Protestant. Well, you're an Anglican now, if you're here. You still are protesting particular issues and doctors of the Church of Rome. Um, so I, I think it's important that we have a, a, an appreciation for Day for Day and Adiaphora. But you can see how we could spend a lot of weeks going over these, these distinctions and appropriating them to particular points. And what my, my hope is, is that our li- the people listening, all y'all listen out, listening out there in Appalachia and other places. In your hollers. In your hollers. No, yeah. <laughs> are able to, um, to take an, an honest look and say, why, why is the ministry, why is the Apocrypha, why are the, the sacraments, you know, whatever it is, why are the things that are not negotiable for the church? suddenly now negotiable. Why are they re- recast as second-tier doctrines when that was not the case? Because doctrine and practice within a living community constitute an organic whole. And if you start messing with one of them, you're going to mess with everything else that's related to them. It's impossible. That's a fine point. Because it's all interconnected, like a like a web, like a spider makes. I don't like to think of doctrine as a web. <laughs> yeah, it's not Shelob's lair. <laughs> he says Shelob's lairs. It's not oh. Ungoliant and, and amongst the Valar. Well, I mean, it's just it's. Well constructed, like a well constructed building. Maybe. Yes, there you go. I, I believe scripture talks about the the church being a a temple composed of living stones. Yes, yes. And then Hermas, the shepherd, Hermas, uh, the prophet in Rome, through the through the visions he has, sees the church as a living tower, or as a, as a tower coming up out of a river, and the angels are taking the stones of various kinds and making them fit together, and then rejecting certain stones, and the tower is the church and the water is baptism and the angels are gathering the elect and making them fit into the church. So I think that wraps everything up for today as it relates to hierarchy, day for day and adiaphora. Yeah, no, you're right. Adiaphora, things that are indifferent. It's important, man. And I know that it sounds like we're trying to make a scholastic distinction and we're not. It's a distinction that we've got to reckon with. So we do not Make things that are essential to Christian faith and practice things that are negotiable. You can't do it. And you can't look, as we've talked about on other topics, you can't look and say, well, the Holy Spirit's there, so it must be okay. That's not, like, reread 1 Corinthians. That's Paul's point. These people are abounding in gifts, and they're sloppy, they're disordered, they're immoral, they're, everything you can imagine that could be wrong is wrong with those people. So. We got to avoid that. Very important to avoid things like that. And when I say those people, I, I plan to see most of them in heaven because I, I think that's Paul's point that they will pre, be presented blameless just through fire. 
Ow. Yeah, Lord help me. Lord have mercy on us all. Right, I just like cool water and, and fun, you know, I don't... <laughs> a fiery expectation of judgment, that's... Yeah. Well, on that note, I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. <laughs>